Amen. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to put something in the James text that we heard uh, Pam read, that lengthy, beautiful text, James 2. Um, if you'd put something there, we'll come back to it. But our primary text today is from the Old Testament, as during the season we look at the readings, especially from the wisdom tradition. Today we find ourselves in Proverbs, the 22nd chapter. The lectionary today picks six verses that have a common theme but are a little bit separate from each other in the text. But the first begins at Proverbs 22. And I'd invite you this morning, if you're able, to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Plus, I just like the sound of that applause that comes. <laughs> a good reputation is better than much wealth. High esteem is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord, Yahweh, made them both. Verses 8 and 9. Those who sow injustice will harvest evil. The rod of their fury will come to an end. Happy are generous people. Because they give some of their food to the poor. And lastly, verses 22 and 23. Don't steal from the poor because they are poor. Don't oppress the needy in the gate. For the Lord, Yahweh, will take up their case and press the life out of those who oppress them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the text this morning uh, forced me to speak on two things I don't really like to speak about. One of the topics I don't like to talk about because I just don't like to talk about it. And the other I don't really like to talk about because it has the potential and usually does at some level get me in trouble. The first topic that we have to talk about today is God's judgment or God's wrath. I don't like to talk about that in part, I think, because I'm part of maybe the last part of generations I think in many ways are overcoming a lot of teaching within the church that caused us to be deeply afraid of God. So I have vivid memories of being in children's church and learning songs. My favorite song in children's church, by the way, was this one. Praise him, praise him, all you little children. God is love, God is love. Oh, you, you learn so well. But it seemed like we would immediately then go into, oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. <laughs> oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. And I know that love is in the next phrase, but I always heard it this way, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Like, um, and, and it's terrible. I was thinking this week, I think in my own kind of preaching ministry, I, I'm, I'm in four digits in terms of numbers of sermons I've prepared and preached now. And who knows how many others I've sat through. But if you were to ask me to remember the sermons I've heard, I think I can name five that I've either heard or preached, by the way. And what's terrible is one of them is a sermon that I heard when I was a fifth grade boy at boys and girls camp. Preached by an evangelist, that really scared the place you don't want to go when you die out of me. 
I, I remember vividly the closing illustration where the invitation was, come, give your life to God. And if you don't, he told the story of a, a little boy about my same age who didn't do that. And the next week was working in their family farm and had heat stroke and fell face forward in a ditch and drowned in three inches of water. I came to the altar, man. <laughs> right? Oh, man. Uh, and so I do think for a couple of generations at least now, and probably rightly so, there's been an apprehension of talking about the wrath of God. Because to come to God out of fear is not really the same as coming to God out of love. And when we come to God out of fear, we only stay long enough for that fear to be there. And so there's something right about that. And, and yet, at the same time, there are texts and moments where we have to think about God's judgment and wrath. So we'll think about that a little bit today. The other subject I like to talk about, but I always get in trouble, is, is God's justice. Um, I like to talk about it, but there are a few brothers out there who aren't as happy when we talk about it. And I think this too has a great deal to do with generational shifts. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a movement called the Social Gospel Movement. A movement that kind of recognized that, especially at the height of the Industrial Revolution, that that there were people, especially in urban centers, who were being left out of the good life, if you will. Some people were getting wealthier and wealthier. Other people were getting poorer and poorer. And, and out of that, then new habits and forms of oppression and kind of life in the city that was built to, to oppress them. Christians began to take seriously the call for our world to be different but out of that, and I think it's a legitimate criticism at times, what we now think of as the social gospel movement could become untethered from the call to discipleship or submission to the saving grace of God. And we can look back now and see movements that began pursuing justice out of a call of Christ that have really become just social organizations detached from the transformation and transforming proclamation of the gospel, if you will. And so there's a kind of legitimate, I think, criticism of that. But then what happens is you have a couple of generations that come along in a time where now the gospel not only scares us a bit, but invites us to an otherworldliness that doesn't pay attention to the things that are going on in front of us. And as James likes to say, that kind of faith that is, doesn't get lived out in some kind of way, that is faith that is dead. And generations come along and say, that is kind of a dead faith. And, and we should pay attention to the roots of many of our movements, including this one and people like Wilberforce and Wesley and Brzee. And, and you can't read the scripture without, I've told you what is good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. If the word justice bothers you, you got to chop off all the prophets, most of the gospels. And you certainly think James is a bale of straw. But here we have it today. Um, not just in the prophetic tradition, but in the wisdom tradition. 
But here's kind of what happens. Um, I, uh, here's an example. About a year ago, in the midst of a lot of the racial conversations, I was reading some stuff online and it made me frustrated. And so I took to Twitter, which is where all profound things happen. And in less than 280 characters, I said something that was profound and righteous and good. Now, I said it on Twitter because not all of you follow me there. Um, <laughs> but I said it, and I, I'll stand by what I said. But, but it was so beautiful and profound and good that another group on Facebook, the Nazarenes for Justice who I don't know who they are, but they captured the tweet, screenshot it, and then put it on Facebook where all of my other friends are. Now, some immediately said, that's right. Thank you, Pastor Daniels, for saying that. Others, not so much. And it made the, we're happy you said this Facebook page, but it also said that, can you believe this heretic who's leading a church of the Nazarene Facebook page? And this pushback against justice and social justice Another funny thing that happened to us right after the death of George Floyd, some of you will remember there was a a vigil held at the Capitol. Debbie and I heard about it and almost immediately looked at each other and said, let's go. But we had this conversation on the way down to the Capitol. We said, "Let's, let's not put this one on social media. And not really because we were afraid, but let's not put this one on because I have this, and I think this is right, I have this apprehension that, that for some, and I'll put myself in this category, that, are, that pay too much attention to social media. Sometimes we can make those proclamations on social media and feel like we've done, now done social justice because we said something profound in 280 characters. Or on this case, we both talked about how we just needed to listen and learn and not talk. And in this case, I was like, I just don't want to parade our righteousness before others and just receive our reward. Well, here's what happened. We were at it. It was profound. But we are largely from Los Angeles still in our imaginations. Large crowd, and you're from there as soon as it's over because you got to beat everybody else to the freeway. And so... So Debbie and I kind of jetted out of there. And as we were walking down Capitol Boulevard, I saw a guy with a camera. And for a half second, I thought, oh, I think he just took a picture of us. When we got home, and I think Zach Marble, I think you were the one that was guilty of this. This picture showed up. (laughs) This picture (laughs) showed up online. And several people jumped on and said, we're proud of you, pastor, right? Uh, There we are right in the middle. Um, By the way, a couple days later, some other people got it and weren't quite as proud of us. Um, But this tension between God's wrath and God's justice. As we think about the wisdom tradition today, Solomon is credited for giving us what is largely thought of as this wisdom tradition literature. Certainly he didn't write it all. There's some scholars who think Solomon in this moment of kind of high political wealth and prestige within Israel. You have this time of relative peace. And so you have the opportunity, you know, philosophy doesn't really work and philosophers don't have a lot to do when the nation's in the midst of war and you're just wondering where your next meal is going to come from. You need some space to think. 
And in this time of peace, and by the way, the other problem when you're a philosopher is you don't really do anything, so you got to work at Starbucks to support yourself. And so Solomon begins to fund this group of people that we might think of as the wise. I have an Old Testament scholar friend who I was talking to one day, and I was saying, yeah, I think a lot about the prophets, priests, and kings. And my friend said, don't forget the wise. And so we're in this section of these folks who begin to say kind of wise things. And this week and next week, we're in the book of Proverbs. And quickly, the book of Proverbs is kind of in three sections. Chapters one through nine is kind of parental wisdom to a child who's going off into the world. And you're saying, as you go off into the world, don't forget these things. Pursue wisdom. We'll be in that section next week. But then there's 10 through 29, I think it is. And in 10 through 29, we just get what I would call wisdom fortune cookies just like thrown at us, right? There's a whole bunch of scattered sayings just thrown all together, sometimes lumped together for reasons, but most of the time just blah, thrown in there. And then we get two kind of letters thrown at the end in 30 and 31. But our text comes from the second section of gathered sayings. And if you have your Bible still open to Proverbs 22, let me point out some of the sayings that are actually taken from Proverbs 22 that you may have known before this morning. If you look at verse 6, this was one of my family's favorites, I think. Train children in the way they should go. Amen. This one came right behind the spoil the rod one. Um, train children in the way they should go. And when they grow old, they won't depart from it. I think in my kind of extended family, we thought Proverbs 22, 6 meant go to church a lot. And I'm still here, right? It must have worked. If you're a fan of financial peace, I think the key bumper sticker verse for that is 22, 7. The wealthy rule over the poor, a borrower is a slave to the lender. Some of you have that on your refrigerator somewhere. It's important to recognize in these familiar words that they are words of wisdom. They're not promises. Proverbs 22.6 is not a promise that if you train up children in certain kinds of ways that they'll always go that direction. You see, here's the problem with children. It's the whole free will thing. <laughs> we looked into robots and went with children. Bad call. No, but... But it's a word of wisdom that says you should train children up in the way that they should go. But they are also words that are kind of, in some ways, part of the wisdom tradition thinks about a pattern, a kind of grain to the universe that is woven. And when we find that grain and live according to it, as we will really see next week, as we live according to that, life seems to go well. And when we live against it, life doesn't go well. And so it shouldn't surprise us that some of the words that we find in Proverbs, we actually can find in other wisdom traditions, maybe even some other religious traditions, or in what we might just call common sense. So again, if you have the text open, look at verse 1 of chapter 22. A good reputation is better than much wealth, and high esteem is better than silver and gold. Amen, that's good. Of course, you didn't really need Proverbs to tell you that. This fall, the production at NNU is the Christmas carol, Christmas carol. You should go see it. I got a kid in it. But you know, Dickens kind of figured out, 
being Ebenezer Scrooge isn't that great a life. You have all the money, but if you don't use that in ways that bless others, what are you living for and earning in the first place, right? Verse 2, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord made them both, which sounds like really great revelation, and, and that's true. But at the same time, it took a little while. We could have listened, you know, 3,000 years ago, but it took us till the Enlightenment to realize, oh, maybe we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal. In verses 8 and 9, those who sow injustice will harvest evil. The rod of their fury will come to an end. Happy are generous people because they give some of their food to the poor. Frankly, even Justin Timberlake realizes this. In his great hymn, what goes around, goes around, goes around, comes all the way back around. That was for about 12 people in this room today, by the way. Yeah. That was just to demonstrate I'm still cool at some level. But much more seriously, in the light of the 20th anniversary of 9-11 yesterday, probably like some of you have watched a couple of the documentaries about 9-11 in the last few weeks. But it's interesting to me as we watch those and rightly remember those who were lost and remember the, the valor and courage and self-sacrifice of so many on that day. And remember the visceral feelings and even the anger that so easily just is still there. The sadness, the grief. But it's been fascinating to watch reflections of 20 years later. Ways in which that moment has invited us to sow goodness and reconciliation and restoration into the world. But ways also in self-reflection where 20 years later we also sowed more hatred and anger and brokenness back into the world. And the reflection of 20 years later, is the world better than it was? More broken than it was? And there's a kind of common sense wisdom there that says, listen, if we want peace and goodness in the world, we should probably work most at sowing peace and goodness and into the world. And so if you're with me, I like those verses. And I hope it's okay for your pastor to say, but you didn't need Proverbs to get there. But verses 22 and 23, that's a different story. And just briefly, if you have your text open, you'll notice there in most translations, there's a break between verses 16 and 17 and a transition in the Common English Bible. The headline is 30 sayings to the wise. This part of the, that section turns to kind of speak to those who've been given positions of authority in the world. And in this wisdom to authority, we get verses 22 and 23. Don't steal from the poor because they are poor. Don't oppress the needy in the gate. For the Lord will take up their case, and here is this language, and press the life out of those who oppress them. Man, that's a scary image. And this, 
I would argue, is something that we need Proverbs to tell us because this is something about God that we receive by the activity of God and the special revelation of God revealed to us in the scripture, but in God's activity in Israel, but also his revelation in Christ. And that is this, that Yahweh, the Lord, takes up the case of the poor. You see, we, we don't need this revelation to believe, and I apologize, but let's think about Exodus. We don't need this revelation to, as humans, believe that the gods are on Pharaoh's side. He has the wealth and the power. We need Exodus to know that, no, actually, the one who created the whole universe is not at all on Pharaoh's side, but is on the side of those who are the poor and oppressed and marginalized called Israel. Because we're good at building gods who support blessed, wealthy, powerful groups of people. The challenge of the biblical revelation is to begin to believe that actually, no, God has a preference and a love for and a embrace of those who are being excluded. So much so that even in God's commitment to Israel, when Israel in their life begins to become the embodiment of what they left behind in Egypt, oppression, and they begin to oppress others, God who has this commitment to Israel suddenly is on the side of those whom Israel is oppressing. Are you with me? So much so that when the incarnation, when God enters into our midst, the story begins this way and it was decreed in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world be taxed. And where does this self-revelation of God find God's self? In the places of power, Herod? No. Caesar? No. But amongst those who are being pushed around by the system, and he emerges into and out of that system, caring for those who are even marginalized within a marginalized system. And then, even as these Jewish disciples begin to embrace the gospel of the resurrected Christ, they begin to realize that now they are part of a system who excludes these people called Gentiles. And now, here's the crazy thing Paul wants to say, now God's on their side. To understand God that way, takes biblical revelation. Takes an understanding. And James says it this way. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom? He has promised to those who love him. That's from our text today, verse 5. So for the Hebrew people, you Christians, you can't think about God without thinking about in particular for the poor and the oppressed. To know God is to know God that way. Let me say two other things then about God's justice. James says God does not show favoritism 
But that favoritism that God does not show, I would argue actually shows up feeling like a kind of favoritism at times. We have four kids, and now two in-laws. I would say this about Debbie. First of all, she makes fun of me all the time. And we'll probably have some constructive criticism about even this message today, let's say. Hypothetically, that may happen. But you maybe want to hold on to your criticism a little bit, right? Like she has plenty of it, but if you have it, That's sort of true about me. That is really true about the six, right? Like we have things to say about our kids, but you may want to hold on to them. Or you may see what we affectionately know as mama bear. Oh, come out. But also when you have now six kids, you realize that you love them equally, but you realize they don't all need equal attention all the time. That every once in a while there's one or two, but hopefully just one. (laughs) It's going through difficulty, challenge, right? And it may feel like to the other five, they're being neglected because you're paying so much attention to the one. In fact, you're even saying to those other five, would you pay attention to the one? But why is that? It's because of the love that you have that if all six don't flourish, nobody in a sense gets to flourish. Like that's, that's the way love operates. Now, even more complicated, what if the difficulty that the one is having is because of a difficulty or the oppression of one of the others? It may not only even feel like those five aren't getting the attention of the one, but it also may feel like this one that's oppressing the other is getting negative attention. You see, it is appropriate to talk about God's love, but you cannot talk about God's love without a passionate part of that love that first of all is jealous and does not want us to pursue idolatry, but a love that burns hot. And when one of God's children is being misused or a group of God's children are being misused, it should not surprise us that the heart of God pursues that one or that people. And the others may say, like the older brother in the parable, hey, where's my cow? But you don't get it. This one was lost and is now found. And it should not surprise you that when one or more of those groups of people become the source of the problem for that one or the more, that the passionate heart of God, not just in anger, but in desire for the oppressor to stop being the oppressor, but to become what they were created to be, a member of God's beautiful family, loving and living together, that there would be discipline and wrath poured out. And I would also say, and this is my space for God's wrath, that God in the Hebrew imagination is not good if the oppressor gets away with it. 
Because as we'll see next week, sometimes when you are the oppressor, it comes back quickly. But sometimes in history, the oppressed die, and it seems as though the oppressor has won. And in the imagination of God's people, God is not good. In fact, the text says, you get pressed like the wine press if you have oppressed others. In fact, Proverbs will say the fear, the respect, the awe, I would say, of the passionate love of God is the beginning of wisdom. And when it comes to God's justice, God has to balance the scales. And for James, then grabbing hold of God's mercy and care toward those in need is not a way of buying God's judgment, but a way of demonstrating one's faith, one's intimate knowledge of God's character. One of my favorite and maybe most shaping theological ideas actually came in a footnote of a book. It's kind of weird. Years ago, I was reading a book by a guy named Clark Pinnock, The Most Moved Mover. It's a good book and caused me to wrestle with some things. But in it, Pinnock's talking about how he gets into theological debates with folks over what he's trying to get at in this book. And they turn kind of ugly. And in a footnote, he says this. As I have sought a reason why such critics can be so unkind and unfair, I have wondered if theologians do not tend to become the picture of the God they espouse. That was really good. I underlined it, circled it. I have wondered if theologians do not tend to become the picture of the God that they espouse. And I guess what I want to say out of this text today is I wonder, and I think James wonders, do we not become reflections of the God we espouse? For James, and for the wisdom tradition, the God we serve is brokenhearted at the people whom he loves in the world who are mistreated and misused and without. And so when one of them walks into the room, James says, here's how you would respond. And I don't think we should respond because if we don't, God's really gonna get us. But we respond in ways that, that say, oh, one of God's deeply beloved children just walked into the room. And although my cultural and earthly eyes have been shaped for me to describe that person, objectify that person as poor, the eyes of the gospel have taught me, oh no, that is special child of God. Here is a seat in the front for you. And 
And it's not for James then that we can't talk about judgment. It's this, that we have become a people so in tuned with the merciful heart of God that James can say something profound, mercy triumphs over judgment. And the apostle can say, perfect love casts out all fear of what he might do to us. Because God is not a God of justice? No, but because we have become so in tune with the heartbeat of God's love that people who live within the perfect love of God do not have to fear the God who will indeed set the scales right someday. And so may we become reflections of the God who has revealed God's self to us. And may our heart beat with the heartbeat of God. There's a song I want us to close in this morning. Between you and me, it's one of my favorites that we sing. I use the language intentionally around here of new creation a lot. And the reason why I do that is not just because it works really well with our initials. But what I love about the language of the new creation is this, that it recognizes we cannot become new creation without the spirit of God transforming us. Even the best of our common sense will not get us to what God expects out of us. That is something only God can do. But what I love about the language of the new creation is it is not a transformation that then kind of works on us here and gets us out somewhere sometime. But it is a spirit that captures us here that then invites us to begin to participate in the great renewal of all things and to participate in God's redemptive new creation. And when that new creation comes, we will say, hallelujah. We've been there, living there a long time and working toward that. That's why we're not a people who are afraid to talk about the transformation of grace and the life devoted to God's justice because we're part of a new creation. And I love that this song invites us to respond as a kind of prayer that says, is the world that yet? No, it's not. So many levels. And some of that's our fault. Oh God, have mercy. But we are people who hunger and thirst for the world to be made right. God, help us today. It is hard uh, for us to talk about wrath. But may we recognize that you are a God whose love burns passionately and with fire for those who have been misused and are being misused. And I pray today uh, for us as a church that you would help us
the fear, the awe, the reverence of you is the beginning of wisdom. And so may we take seriously that. I pray so often, God, in a place and in a culture where where we have gotten used to wasting so many resources and seeing them as blessing. I sensitize our heart. And more than that, move our feet, move our hands. Have mercy. And in a time where sometimes it's difficult because a word like justice has been co-opted in so many different ways, help us not to lose the call that you have put upon us as your children to do the right thing in the pursuit of the new creation. You've told us what is good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And so make us humble today. Make us merciful today. Make us people of justice today for we hunger for things to be made new, for things to be made right. And may that give lived, lived out as wants it to in our everyday life as God's people. In the beauty of the way we treat each other, even the stranger who comes in our midst. Make us a reflection of the new creation, we pray. We desperately cry for it. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Stand with me.